which is the best racehorse in your view? So you just ask this question so casually. I've resisted answering this question in every forum. Oh, come on, it's Don't Shoot the Messenger. But I'll answer it here. You just want young boys to grow up knowing it is not okay. Yeah. And not just violence. I mean, the whole kind of hashtag me too. Members of the Liberal Party who voted and raised that as a notion are fools and idiots and are to be dismissed. You'll be on the front page of The Guardian now. Well, I just think that is perfectly obvious. I felt a bit shameful that I hadn't read this book. I cannot put it down. I started it two nights ago. In fact, you know, let's wind up the podcast. I want to go home. I've got about another 20 pages. We try to aim for Sunday nights together as a family. So it's from the Family Circle Cookbook. And I can't remember when I found it, but I've been cooking it since before we had kids. So that's 15 years minimum. I don't know why I'm laughing about Family Circle. Claire and I prepared a local tip. Kids love to rake. (laughs) Let the kids do the raking. Welcome everyone to episode 42 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Corey Perkin, not joined this week by award-winning journalist Caroline Wilson. Caro, of course, is enjoying her midwinter break, but I'm thrilled to have in her seat our guest podster today and another award-winning journalist, uh, Fox Footy and SEM presenter and book author and a good mate of the pod, Jared Waitley. Hello, Jared. Hello, Corrie. It's lovely to have you. It's a great honour to be here. If this goes well, is this my entree into coastal scrabble and champagne? <laughs> Only if you come with a good recipe or two, then you're welcome. <laughs> I, um, I, I believe you and your your wife, Claire, are very keen fans of Don't we Shoot are. the Messenger. Yeah, Claire is quite the connoisseur. So we have book choices and movie choices and TV choices that are very much taken to heart. So I would say you and Caro and Lee Sales and Annabelle Crabb are Claire's potters of choice. Oh, yeah, so I do feel you, you've probably chosen the wrong person. You should have asked Claire to come in, but I'll do my best. Well, we'll send her Cheerios, but thanks, Jared, for filling in the high heel shoes of Caro. <laughs> they are immense, I can tell you. Um, look, not much housekeeping today, Potties. We've been well behaved, um, but I did want to send a Cheerio to Helen of Perth, who was um, in Melbourne on the weekend and popped into the bookstore, and it was really great to meet her and her partner. They listen to the podcast each week, um, and we have quite a few potties in Perth, so good day to everyone. We've got lots on the show today. Um, Of course, we uh, will be discussing the national grief surrounding the murder of Eurydice Dixon. Uh, last week, and of course, the ABC gear is gearing up for the fight of its life. And Jared is going to give us his summary of AFL season 2018 at this halfway point. I have a book recommendation, plus, Jared is going to divulge his favourite pasta recipe. Pressure's on, Jared. It's the Sunday night special. <laughs> I do. I sort of live in fear of next week's apologies. I don't know whether to preemptively apologise or whether I'll just have to email in my housekeeping in the aftermath of it. Hey, can I ask you this? Is, Caro's, is it true that Caro's real name is Julia? Yeah, Julia she Caroline that Wilson. In, right. Yeah. She dropped that in last week. I thought. That was very casually just in and gone. <laughs> oh, there are a lot of things about about her that people don't know. Mm. That's why they love Don't Shoot the Messenger, because they feel they've got a bit of dirt each week. <laughs> uh, no, it is. I, in fact, it's, um, my father was Edwin Graham Perkin, known as Graham, and yep. my brother is Philip Stephen Perkin. So I think it's not as uncommon, perhaps, as um, we realise that. But, uh, yes, that's why all her mail comes to Julia, um, which she often thinks is for her mum. But, no, it's for her. That bill, that parking fine, all for you. Um, Jared, it has been a um, pretty sort of sad and extraordinary week this week, the tragic murder last week of 22-year-old Melbourne comedian Eurydice Dixon. Um, It continues to be 
a topic for discussion. Um, it feels like we're we're amidst um, or in the middle of a shocked public trying to grapple with these broader issues of violence in our community, the safety of women and so on. I wondered what uh, thoughts you'd had about this. You're a father of two daughters and a boy as well. But what are your feelings about this? So these moments come along and they violate us as a community, don't they? they they're much broader than the immediate family unit and community of the victim and it does bring to mind Jill Maher, who was sort of the previous one to this, and then it also sort of draws in Luke Batty and Darcy Freeman, is it, it does deeply affect all of us uh, because it is that the threat of it in our community and really that, that violation we expect to be safe, even though we're not unrealistic about the way the world is. So the morning was interesting. I heard it on the 6am news and then after the show, I had an appointment out at Carlton, so I drove and parked at Princess Park. So the crime tape was all up, and there was sort of the tarpaulin out in the middle of the oval. So to have a visual of it um, made it even more real than it is. And then you go through all the layers of response, but the, the shock, the profound shock and sadness is the first, I'm sure you would have felt yeah, the same. Yeah, well, look, as, uh, for those um, potties who don't know the story, Eurydice is a stand-up comedian. She had a gig in the city, in the Melbourne CBD, and she was walking home uh, at about 20 to 11 last Tuesday, Tuesday week ago. She was attacked and raped and murdered um, not long after she had, in fact, sent a text to her boyfriend saying, I'm almost home yep. safe. Um, her body was found by a passerby on the field at Princess Park Sporting Precinct in Carlton, as you said, around 3am. Um, paramedics were called, um, but Eurydice sadly could not be revived. And uh, someone has been charged with her murder. James Todd, 19 of Broadmeadows, was arrested on Wednesday night. He actually presented himself to the Broadmeadows Police Station. Uh, so this is um, this has been an extraordinary um, outpouring of grief. I think, as you said, partly because it's local and also because it just seems such a random attack of violence. The police um, came out with uh, it, it caused a bit of fur to fly um, um, within the community. Um, they issued suggestions for women to take care and to quote exercise situational awareness. Um, and one of the police officers said, "So just to make sure that you have situational awareness, make sure you you're aware of your surroundings, and if you've got a mobile." phone carry it and if you've got any concerns call the police immediately which is all really good advice but again there's that uh, issue of putting putting not blame so much but yep. the responsibility on the women and of course a number of um, particularly mostly female um, commentators but also some men as well have come come back saying women shouldn't have to live with this fear for their safety and that, that kind of victim blaming had to stop so that sort of has made it rather political. Malcolm Turnbull, of course, made a comment in Parliament, as did Bill Shorten. And um, I don't know whether you saw Gay Alcorn's piece in The Guardian, Jared, but she pointed out that more than 80% of perpetrators of murders, of murders and other violent crimes are men and that Dixon's death had intensified a cultural debate about how boys are raised and um, contemptuous attitudes, contemptuous attitudes toward girls and women. So what do you tell your son? So the first thing is I always think in a week like this is to listen first and, and then try to understand. So the police statement was made before the perpetrator was apprehended so that there was a, 
a very real risk in the community. So I thought some of the uh, the extrapolation from that was a little bit unfair on what his intention was at the time. But I did read the piece that's that made the comparison, say, between sort of the, the king hit, which has been changed in the language to the coward punch, is it's never debated that the young male victim shouldn't have been out at the bar that late and he shouldn't have been drinking. It is all directed straight towards the aggressor and how absolutely unacceptable that is. There seems to be a qualifier sometimes when women are the victims of these crime from sort of sitting back and listening, which it's hard to argue it's anything other than sexist and what our predisposition or our prejudices are being carried into this. So is it Margaret Atwood who's got the quote, um, men fear that women will laugh at them, women fear Mm. that men will kill them? Mm. I think it is Margaret Atwood. So I think men should hear that. I also think, I thought Daniel Andrews' tweet sort of got right to the heart of it. Our message to Victorian women is this, stay home or don't. Go out with friends at night or don't. Go about your day exactly as you intend on your terms because women don't need to change their behaviour. Men do. Mm. And I personally think most men understand that and especially fathers. That's what we crave in society, but that doesn't happen one day to the next. And Did you talk about it with your kids? Uh, we spoke about it with Claire more than the kids so far. I'm not sure whether it was in their consciousness. I don't know whether it's it's on their radar how, yet or how not. Old are, so how they're old are fourteen and eleven. Mm. The girls are. So I'm not sure whether Claire's spoken to them about it or not. I haven't. And Benji's five, but there'll come a time. So the the first thing, the police thing is, you go as a father, right? Well, make sure you're safe when you're walking. Make sure people know where you are. And then as Claire tells me, this is what she and her friends all do whenever they catch an Uber, whenever they catch a taxi, whoever the last one out of the car is, everyone's in contact until everyone gets home. So that idea that women aren't doing this, well, how much more do we expect to do? We expect society to change. And so the bit I haven't liked is that in these moments, sometimes all men get bracketed together as men are absolutely as appalled by this as women are the oh. men i know and and also you know if you if you're a bloke walking down the street at night home from the train t- station or something you're actually a, 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 a wanting to tell the women in your surrounding i'm not um i'm not evil you know i'm i'm not a bad guy don't be don't feel threatened or concerned about me being here i'm walking home i often wonder about how we can you know, make everybody relax there. The man is tense. The women who think, "Am I being followed? Who are the foot? Who who are the footsteps behind me?" Yep. There's a couple of other things I picked out. So Natalie Hutchins, the Minister for Family Violence and Women, she did an interview on Three AW, and she raised the prospect: "Is do you think the media unplay underplay the murder of women? Do do you think?" They do? I don't. I do? certainly don't think in this case or uh, the Jill Maher, who would have been a colleague of yours at the yep. ABC, I thought. Uh, I think the media handle it pretty carefully. There was, as you said, a little bit of a, um, again, I won't say knee-jerk response from some women, but uh, in, in, they probably moved too quickly on the, um, the police commissioners um, and the cohort there at VicPol, their statements about women's safety. Uh Clementine Ford in particular, feminist writer, she was very aggrieved. But I don't mind reading those stories because they remind us of the balance there. 
for me, how it's it, it's come home. It came came home to you because you saw the visual at Princess Park. For me, it came home because um, one of my daughters, the youngest, Coco, went to the vigil on Monday night, the pay tribute moment, and uh, it came absolutely out of the blue. She just decided to do it and told me about it the next day. I was quite surprised and proud of her to, to do that. And I was asking her about it, you know, what was it like? And she'd actually been in Lyon when, uh, remember the Je Suis Charlie um, yep. massacre in Paris? Well, there were big, all around pr- France, there were these big vigils and moments and rallies of support. And she actually went to the one in Lyon and she said it had a very similar fa- f- feel. Uh, people are disbelieving, they can't fathom it. There's an incredible collectiveness of um, love and support. Nobody's really sure what of, but just of the community all saying, you know, we are as at one and we are not violent. The demographic, she said, was amazing. She said, yes, there were women and there were a lot of older women, but there are a lot of men. She yep. mentioned hipsters in particular. <laughs> I don't know why. But she said, you know, younger blokes, uh, uni students um, and kids. That was the other thing. She said there were lots of kids, which made me wonder, is that an appropriate forum to take a child who's perhaps under the age of 14 or 15 who may not have heard about it or perhaps is not aware? You know, is it a good thing to – what point do you educate your kids about this sort of thing? I'm not sure. Interested with you, with your daughters. Yeah. So – I would like our elders to know about it as soon as she's ready to, and I would imagine that they will form their own view in a peer group, which is probably more powerful. What do they say? If you want to change the world, get to the teenage girls, um, and they they could change the world together as they come through. So it's that idea that Eurydice should have expected to be able to walk that path, which she had done previously, home safely. And when that doesn't happen, what does that mean to us as a broader community? It, it, we're not, it's not profoundly less safe now than it has been. Is, you know, Gideon Haig has written those two recent books about Beth Williams in certain admissions and Molly Dean in A Scandal in Bohemia, which are gruesome murders of young women, which echo through Eurydice, they echo through Jill Maher. So this presence and threat is part of our community and always has been. It, it's not been eradicated. Is it unrealistic to think that it will be eradicated? Probably. But the attitudes that come through around violence towards women are more prominent than they have been. And I think because that discussion is more present, we expect that that delivers results. Mm. And I think it's it's disappointing to us when it doesn't. It's disappointing when... The issues of of violence in the home against women are not they're not lessening. How can we as a community have reached a point where the discussions are now open there there is a level of enlightenment, but it is not having a further effect is that's the change that we would crave to make rather than one deranged person. There will always be one deranged person in our community, and police and authorities do their best to protect citizens from that but it's unrealistic to think that that would ever be entirely solved you just want young boys to grow up knowing it is not okay yep don't you and not and not just violence i mean the whole kind of hashtag me too um and uh, you know as coco was saying she feels that at the moment she's living through a time of protest i'm quite envious of her because you know when i was her age in the late 70s and early 80s 
I don't know what we, I don't think we protested again yeah. against anything. You know, maybe the we wanted the pubs open till midnight or something. I can't really remember. But, you know, as she said, you know, there's been the Women's March, which she marched in again. Um, anti-gun legislation in the in the States has been huge. Even here, live sheep and cattle export and domestic violence, of course, people are constantly, um, you know, vocal about that. Um, and it's she said it's as though there's a younger generation trying to take back the space and own it and say, look, you know, this is, all of this has become sort of ugly and we're full of fear. We're not going to stand for it anymore. And when that generation inherits the earth... Yes. We hope they don't the, change. It will change, you would think. Yeah, well, we hope you? they don't change their attitudes yeah. for whatever reasons. Because I don't be. think women are the only um, bodies protesting in this. No. I think young men understand that as well as... I don't think Me Too is restricted to an understanding of just female. Uh, and once you break those attitudes on the way through, uh, I think you know what you would regard as the lingering from previous generations will either die out or become less prevalent, replaced by something else. So I guess our responsibility is to make sure what replaces it more adequately reflects what we aspire to. Yes, well, that's right. Well, that's why you and I have, and Miss Jane, our producer, have a responsibility to bring our young boys up, you know, with, with, with all of these things in mind and a, a much kind of more compassionate view, I guess, of the situation, the issues at hand and so on. What I'm very perplexed about today, Jared, is that I can't understand the attitudes of so many people, particularly on the conservative side of politics, who hate our ABC. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I just wondered whether you're allowed to talk about this. I did. I don't know whether you know, but last year, last week, I was uh, on the conversation now with John Fain, our good friend at Seven Seven Four Melbourne, and we went into the pre-interview. Um, sort of 15 minutes in that period, we went into the space, which is the ABC. I told him I'd just become a paid-up friend of the ABC yep. and donated to the Fighting Fund. And, of course, he then unleashed fury <laughs> and made a few comments, which I was surprised to see made the front page of The Guardian the next day, you know, John Fang talking to co-presenter Cory Perkins. Yes. I thought, oh, well. Yeah, that's right. But then it's so many things have happened. This is all because, you know, last month's federal budget the federal government announced that from uh, 2019 they're going to cut $83.7 million. And this is, of course, after they've already cut in recent times news and public affairs funding by $43 million. Really, what is left, Jared? I know you've left the company, yes. but your pay wasn't that significant. <laughs> it's made a difference. Bill Shorten has said that a Labor government, if elected, would reverse this decision. And then shock horror last weekend at the Liberal Party conference, uh, there was a move backed by at least four of the party's top federal officials that the ABC should be privatised, it should be sold off, uh, which was just a real shock to everybody, even though the Prime Minister has come out, come out and said afterwards um, that they would not be uh, selling the broadcaster. And then Michelle Guthrie, the uh, ABC CEO, um, made a rather blistering, uh, which was good for her because she's been very quiet on the topic. She spoke at the Melbourne Press Club this week saying that, you know, hands off our ABC. So what are your thoughts and why do we all care so much? So I think... To break that down into a few pieces, the members of the Liberal Party who voted and raised that as a notion are fools and idiots and are to be dismissed. Uh, You'll be on the front page of The Guardian now. Well, I just think that that is perfectly obvious. Uh, so I might disappoint you in a little bit of this. So I, I am 
absolutely resolute. I'm not going to be the former ABC employee who speaks very much about the ABC, and I certainly won't review it. Uh, I was. It was great to see Michelle Guthrie go to the barricades yesterday because I think that's been a little bit that's been missing. Sometimes I think the organisation is in a bit of an apologist for itself when it doesn't need to be. Uh, it is, it's a grand and vital institution in Australia society and should remain thus. And it doesn't mean everything that they do lives up to that mantle and should be ultimately protected, but they have been used as a political punching bag and that that was called out by the managing director and said no more is that's important. And I'm forgiving of Guthrie because I think it takes a while to learn the organisation. Well, she came she, to she, it with no knowledge, she came, really. She came to it, was it News Corp? She She'd been with? through Google and, um, yeah, so she didn't have a knowledge of the ABC. It does take a while to acquire that. It changed a lot in my time there and I don't think I ever fully grasped it either. So she's done a, a lot of work and done the work rather than provided the commentary, and I have uh, a degree of sympathy for that, but now's the time. Mm. Um, some of the funding cuts have just been acts of retri- retribution for small things that a government haven't liked, and that's no way for a responsible government to behave. I think ultimately they will be judged for that. The most important thing at the ABC is funding, and that is absolutely self-evident. And if you run any analysis of what happens at the BBC, you understand that. So if you cut the funding, you restrict the capacity of the ABC to live up to what it needs to be in our modern media landscape. Uh, and then you're at the mercy of bureaucrats to make the right decisions within the organisation of what to protect and what to keep. And I don't think they always make the best decisions. So if you were the boss, what would you do about this funding issue? Um I would, and at the, I won't stray too far from what I said. I wouldn't do, but choose what is core and shed the rest. So, what is fundamental to what the ABC has been, wants to be, and is right now, with especially with the way that the media world has changed, and funnel all of your energies, efforts, talent, and funding into that and shed the rest. Stop trying to be everything to everyone. Just figure it out and uh, and be callous in a way whilst, um, whilst you reset yourself. And you don't want to say, do you, what you think is core? No, no. So, And, and it's, there are lots of different um, parts to it, but within sport, I think I developed a reasonably good understanding of what was core and what was not, and they could never ultimately make the decisions that despite their own sort of research and findings, they could never absolutely follow through and do what needed to be done. So that's why I say not every element should be... Not every element meets the lofty expectations and hopes, but there's a there's an aspiration within the ABC. There's a responsibility when you work there that the people treat seriously. And the most the funniest thing I find, and I get it a little bit here from people who are getting to know me, is they they think everybody who works for the ABC or has ever done is a left wing militant. <laughs> what do you think the chances of that really are? Well, Eric Betts on radio this week. I don't know whether you heard him on Radio National. He was blistered in an, in an interview because he 
essentially made that kind of um, remark. Yeah. Imagine that's his, that's the his chances of that. <laughs> Of everybody who worked there and everyone who's ever worked there being a left-wing militant. I mean, it just doesn't stand to any level of scrutiny or common sense, to be frank. And the the fact that you get labelled with it because you work there, even in sport, I mean, that's just laugh out loud. Well, Julia Baird, who we love, not only is she a terrific announcer and an eminent Australian academic, but she also wrote that really fantastic biography of Queen Victoria a couple of years ago. (laughs) Uh, Julia Baird tweeted this morning and she said, you know, this idea that there are no mainstream or conservative managers or producers or voices at the ABC is actually factually incorrect. Yeah. Um, There are many. And she also said that presenters are scrupulous in keeping political views private and no one knows how we vote. And I just remember from my old days, you know, running around the age in The Australian, that you were never really uh, asked about your political views. You were certainly, unless you were a high paid columnist and you were encouraged to give your political views, you were never, you never revealed your political views or your stance. And it was actually in the journalist code of ethics and code of conduct that you must report things fairly and accurately. And I know that analysis and personal views have now come more into the yep. reporting space. I'm not such a great fan of that, I have to say, especially when you're covering news stories. Keep your views out of it. But we were taught to just be, to, to be as level and as unbiased as possible. I don't know why everybody suddenly is shouting that, you know, any government, the Hawke government, the Keating government, they all came under fire just as much as Malcolm Turnbull's government has. Yeah, and searching for agenda in anything that gets said or written, search for error by all means, but searching for sort of that dogmatic underlying the doctrine, no, that's you, – you don't walk in the door of the ABC and they give you the little red manual, you know, this is it, <laughs> right. this, is, this is what we preach. Yeah, and here's the line to Moscow direct. Yeah. Um, Jared, I want to move now on to another topic that is close to yours and my heart, which is the football season, the AFL football season. We're at the halfway point, uh, hence Caroline's away on a Greek island enjoying her time off. I was not so sure at the start of the season that Richmond could go all the way. I wasn't as convinced as I was the year before with the Western Bulldogs Bulldogs that they were going to somehow implode. I thought, you know, they're a very good team and they do have Dustin. But <laughs> but really on uh, on the weekend watching the match against Geelong and I did tip the Cats. Shoot me for doing that. No, I but too. um but I just wasn't sure that they would be able to tie it tie it up and they did so effectively. Yeah. Are they the team to, to beat, do yeah. you reckon? They're a proper good team. They're not a superpower, but they are the best team in the competition and I think they're growing into that idea all along. So they get into a battle and it was a proper battle on Sunday. The conditions were hard and the physicality was high and kicking goals was difficult. And the game's on the line entering the last quarter. And then there are there are deeds and there are moments that they do because they believe they're the best team in it. And the more they believe it, the more they do it, the more it reinforces that they are the best team in it. And there were there were sort of four moments which leapt out to me. One was a Shane Edwards hand pass, which was extraordinary. It was so good and fast and unexpected that Dustin Martin didn't even know the ball was coming to kick them out on the full there was a Dan Butler pass off the outside of his boot to Jack Revolt, who was sort of seven metres away, to kick a goal, which was just so crafty. There were the two tackles of 
Trent Cotchen, who sort of took it upon himself as Joel Selwood was trying to will Geelong on the line, and Trent Cotchen just said, not on my watch. He played the leader, didn't yeah. he? Yeah, he set up the goal that Martin kicked, and then there was Daniel Rioli and just the go-forward Richmond footy, which is their signature moment of the year. Just keep the ball alive around the boundary. It gets forward. Mitch Duncan picks it up. Rioli tackles him, wins holding the ball. He kicks the goal, and that's the sealer. So they are growing more and more into the idea that they're the best team in it. They're a worthy defending champion. Richmond at the MCG is the best footy in it, uh, which doesn't uh, doesn't preclude anything else. I still think the rest of the season is wide open and it could still provide a huge surprise, but we have a proper one seed and a, and a good comp needs the, needs the top seed. And who's the sadness? Who's the disappointment? Uh, Adelaide's the disappointment because they've sort of disappeared without a whimper. And again, what do you look, think's happening? I, this is I, this is a story that'll be written in hindsight because there's a lot that will have happened and a lot that will be going on. But emotional no one will stuff, really emotional say, yeah, stuff, because yeah. they haven't been hit by a barrage of injuries. Oh, they, I, they, a few, both, but, but, I think. Yeah. I think both. So, how did they handle their grand final loss? Not well. Why and how? I uh, will tell you that in about three months' time. What role does the camp? play in all of this, this sort of sinister feeling camp. It's either the default position and the easiest thing to blame and analyse, or it's very real in undermining the the camaraderie, the collective sense of purpose, which they no longer have. They changed their training program, which has led to injury, which has undermined everything they're trying to do on the field. And then what is the relationships like within the team and what is the relationships like between player and coach? Only hindsight will bear that out. But you can say whatever you like. And then you can watch, and you watch season on the line, second half, Saturday night, not a whimper. Mm. So they gave up in the game in the top end against Melbourne, and they went without a whimper when it was all on the line. In a sporting context, sometimes you just say, I see it. So we'll understand this later, but this is what's going on. It's pretty grim to watch, I have to say, especially if you back for Adelaide. Yeah, and, and unexpected. Like, they lauded over the competition last year. They did. And Richmond got them at the end. But they were heavy favourites on grand final day. They dismantled Geelong in the preliminary final. They were set to win it. They'd played exhilarating high-scoring footy all year. They They were the clear pick heading in. And Richmond took them apart. And what's happened in the aftermath of that, losing grand finals is not easy to deal with. And I think... Adelaide's become the the most current case of that. And all the the off-the-field dramas that you and Robbo talk about each night on Fox Footy and that we see unfold, uh, sometimes when we're in the middle of a season, it's hard to see what's going to be the the big issue or the one or two issues that that will go on perhaps beyond 2018. Is there anything that's standing up for you? I know Caro yeah. on one level is very concerned about Tasmanian football. Yep. That's probably in a basket of its own. But what, what about you? The game itself. So the game isn't all that it can be and nor is it all that we want it to be. And change is coming. So this is a real moment. I think this is a really positive discussion, even though people see it through a negative prism. But the spectacle of the game is poor this season, broadly speaking. And the AFL has previously recognised this. There's nothing reactionary to it. It's the first moment that I've been involved in the game where you go, instead of chasing what's going on here, they've gone from February. What's the best that the game can be? And how do we help this? And I've seen um, at close quarters the work that has been done by the game analysis group, Steve Hocking and David Rath and James Podsy-Adley, 
and the the depth of analysis and clever thinking, thoughtfulness and care. It's care for the game, honor the heritage, operate within the charter, help the game be as good as it can. Because anyone who says to me now the game has never been better, you go, you're not watching or you can't remember or you're so blinded by the idea of leave the game alone that you won't acknowledge what's before us. It's hard to get through a whole game. In your lifetime, moment. what do you think has been the peak time? Uh, well, and so there's a trap in this. Is I don't want the game to go back to anything. Mm. I just want the game to be as good as it can be. So there are there's a period of footy in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, and then there are a couple of teams who have played in a manner like Geelong of 07, 08, 09, Hawthorne of 13, 14, 15. But that's not the game. It's an entirety. You can't frame it through the best team of the day. But we have gone through a period of evolution that has led us directly to here where defence outweighs all else. That is what's coached. We try to stymie what the other team is doing. So defensive efficiency is through the roof. Offence is through the floor. And we've crossed. And without intervention, it will never get back. The game is, at its best, it's a beautiful, thrilling, physical spectacle where the ball moves is the ball just doesn't move nearly as much anymore because of the construct that's been imposed around it. The game has a right to go, no, that's not what we want. So we'll pull players away from it, starting positions. or And it it sounds more radical than it is. And I think once it comes in, we'll go, oh, thank goodness, the game can breathe. And the players who we all believe are fitter, stronger, hopefully more skillful than they've been in the past, they'll actually get to play the game to their full capacity and that will return some of the spectacle that I think has been suffocated out of footy. Save our game. Set the footy free. Do you remember in 2016, I can't remember what month it was, but you came into the bookshop and you had a bit of a sad look on your face and you were about to go and visit Bob Murphy, the great, the great bulldog and captain who was having surgery he had acquired an injury that would see him out of the game for the rest of the year and of course he didn't make it for grand final day which is one of the great tragedies of modern football Mm -hmm. but you're on your way to see him and you wanted to take him a couple of books he now has a book coming out yes which is great so i think it's in i think it's a july end of july 30th of july release and um I have to say that Bob Murphy has written for The Age for several years and he's also uh, the author of another book. He writes like a dream. Yep. He needs no ghostwriter. Nope. Um, but this book is called Leather Soul and it's going to be uh, published by Black Ink and uh, it says here, uh, takes the reader inside his 17-year career, including his three years as captain of the Bulldogs, da-da-da-da, and the whole box and dice. You're a good buddy of Bob Murphy. Is he working well with life after football? It would seem. I would say yes, yes. So I've read some of the book uh, and I look forward to reading the rest of it. And it's every bit his um, his persona, his take on football. So he's very spiritual when it comes to football. I think he's a really good antidote. We live in the age of analytics above all else. And AFL is not unique in that aspect, but analytics, analytics have taken over. Bob's got the symbolism to balance the analytics and the spirituality in football is real. Is It was real in what the Bulldogs did. It was real in what Richmond did last year. So somewhere in the middle is where, where the possibilities sort of fuse is you have to have the structure of football, but you, 
the soul and the powerful connection, um, which is what he always understood and he was able to convey. The bit but, that- how, how did, but how did he? How did he? Use that in his way of overcoming what must be must have been immense disappointment. Yeah, I don't think he's totally over the disappointment. I think that will become real in the book. He doesn't sugarcoat that. So I reckon he was asked to walk a really hard line, as we were all, in a sporting sense, grieving for him and all looking at him to. Um, I guess, to express the injustice of it all. We felt the injustice on his behalf and we looked on it in on him to sort of rail against it as well. And he had to hold his dignity and keep his place and behave like the captain of a football club that was about to achieve the best thing they'd done in more than half a century. And not be a distraction to the players. Yeah, yeah. And he ended up being a fundamental part of it. And we're so militant as because he didn't play, we won't acknowledge him as part of the premiership and yet he's a central core to it. And that's what, the Luke Beveridge gesture, which not everybody understands, and that's okay, is Bob's not a, a I, Bob's not a mainstream product. He's, I think he was a um, a connoisseur's choice who suddenly, through exposure, became the most popular footballer in the competition by public vote. You know, everyone who's voting for, him, I don't think, really understood him or where he's coming from. He was sort of a, he was the offbeat look at footy. So when he retired from the game, my hope was, you know, he's not your average ex-player. Don't put him in the average ex-player's role. Don't make him a boundary rider. Make him a different kind of expert. Don't ask him to do the same thing that Nick Revolt has come out of the game and just done superbly. He's just grasped that straight away. Let him be who he is. So the fact that this esoteric show starts on Fox Footy Yeah, that's right. Night, he's got it. So tell me about this yeah. show. What's so it called? It's called Bob. Oh. <laughs> And it's just a conversation about football and its place in our community. And but he its has place it with himself. Or... So the first episode was with Rob Sitch. Oh, okay. Rob's dad played a little bit for Melbourne. Rob played as a kid. Rob travels with his shortwave radio around the world to try to stay in touch with how Melbourne is going and to get the footy scores. And then they talk about Maldivia and a river somewhere. And and it's it's just... So it's him with just one guest? Yep. Or... And it goes for half an hour. Uh, and Nat Fife, Julia Gillard, Tex Perkins, just people who are connected to the game in various different ways. And it's just a conversation. And it doesn't pretend to be a headline grabber, but it's everything that is warm and comforting about the game. So sometimes we get lost in the combativeness of it. And, and warm and comforting about Bob too. Yeah, yeah. So he's very natural to it. Rob Sitch was a brilliant first guest. You know, who doesn't love Rob? Uh, and... It's it's not replacing anything. It's just an addition to the way that you might choose to save a football, and that's him. So while he'll play other roles along the way, that's him, and I'm glad that he's got a, a vehicle to to pursue that and dis- display that. Well, we love his writing, and I think we're going to love his television show, just simply called Bob. Bob. <laughs> On to BSF now. This is where we require you to do a bit of work, Jared. Oh, we I can't want, wait to hear what we you've want got information yep. um, from you. But I'll start it off with books. Um, I know Caro has been reading a lot. I've been receiving a few little text messages from her about her reading holidays. So there'll be lots of books to catch up on next week. But I want to tell you about this one called Home Fire by Camilla Shamsi. Camilla is a Pakistani-born London-based author. 
and she was longlisted for the Man Booker Prize last year, and her book Home Fire just recently last week won the Women's Prize, which some will remember it used to be called the Orange Prize for fiction, and then it was recently called the Bailey's Prize. So they've ditched the sponsor's name, and they're just calling it the Women's Prize. It is the most prestigious award for female writers in the world. And I felt a bit shameful that I hadn't read this book. I cannot put it down. I started it two nights ago. In fact, you know, let's wind up the podcast. I want to go home. I've got about another 20 pages. But it's very, uh, it's very topical and it's a family drama set in modern day London. Part of the action is set in the Middle East. And it involves three London-based Pakistani-born siblings, the older sister Isma and um, her younger twin uh, brother and sister Pavias and Anika. Their parents have died. Their father was a Muslim freedom fighter who died mysteriously while being taken to Guantanamo jail. And their mother has died uh, when the twins were 11. So Isma has really raised these kids alone in London. Everything starts to unravel when Pavez, through the local soccer team, he's 19 at this stage, is lured to Syria through the Muslim Brotherhood network and disappears. And both sisters are frantically trying to find him. Enter Eamon, the attractive son of the up-and-coming politician, Home Secretary, who himself is Muslim. And he is a very charismatic older politician, and we wonder whether he, in fact, can help Anika bring her brother home. Look, Jared, this book has had rave reviews. You and Mrs. Waitley can um, have your own little book club. I'm sure you'll yes. both really enjoy it. It's an easy read, but it's a, in terms of the – it's um, – lightning fast action but the characters these three kids um, as adults it's just such an extraordinary story of bond family secrets uh, and just misplaced trust uh, and respect Um, I mean obviously Pavias realizes that someplace he is in the wrong place with the wrong gang of people Uh, and what matters really is family love great book Home Fire, great one for book clubs. Uh, do yourself a favour. Now, is there on, a political overlay to it as well as the family unit? There, there is, but not preachy. Mm-hmm. It's very much. I think this is happening a lot. Well, we know it is with um, families in Britain, where uh, because of their connections through second or third generation with Pakistan or so on, or or Muslim, um, other Muslim countries, the kids are being taken back to the homeland. Or this is where your grandparents grew up, or whatever, and either in London. All back over there, suddenly they uh, fall into the hands of of people who f- who feel, for whatever political reason, they can manipulate these kids and bring them over to the other side. Uh, this is a really great story, very contemporary story. Um, you're going to tell us about Screen. What have you been watching? So we you're always on television. A... When do you yes. get time to watch? We needed a little bit of an antidote to. So the great series of the day are heavy going. So Handmaid's Tale, The Americans, The Crown are probably what we've been working through recently. So Claire in particular found that at the end of our hour, you just needed a little sweetener at the end. So we searched because you can't go to bed with yeah. all that trauma in your yeah. head. <laughs> so we searched for the twenty-two minuter, and for a little while we watched The Good Place. Uh, but the kids like The Good Place so much that. Claire and the kids would watch it, and I'd sort of see an episode every now and then, but couldn't get the thread of it. But so we've kept for ourselves Brooklyn Nine Nine. So this is a classic sitcom. It's set in a police precinct in Brooklyn, and 
It is distinguishable for two reasons. It has a large key cast, so it operates with seven major characters and a couple offset against that. So that's I think that's a lot, as the formula usually is four, and then you get friends which might have strayed to six. So this goes with seven, and it is it laugh out loud funny, I reckon, at least five times in 22 minutes consistently. So that's a blessing. The central characters... Uh, hit all the right caricatures because a comedy must, mustn't it? You've got to know exactly who you're watching and what their interactions are going to be. So Peralta's the central character. He's a cocky young detective who is too cool to wear a tie and won't conform to convention. So he's a rebel, but he's the best detective in the place. His counterpoint is Santiago, who's the young female detective who's earnest and competitive and seeks to be the teacher's pet. She wants the approval of the captain, but she likes the sparring with Peralta. And as it goes along, there's a clear spark between them, Love. which is unresolved uh, early in season two, which is where we're up to. Captain Holt is a gay police captain, the only one in the NYPD, who is completely deadpan. And most of the jokes around him are as to whether he's been funny or serious and no one can read him. He is excellent and he the the whole show sort of he's the he's the center point everything revolves around him Boyle is the hopeless sidekick uh, Diaz has the mean exterior and Boyle has a thing for her she's got it was revealed sort of the heart of gold as it comes along she's it's all front Hitchcock and Scully are the two incompetent detectives for the cheap laugh Jean is the ditzy secretary who's spiritual and hilarious and Sarge is the bodybuilding department head who tries to keep them all together. So they have sort of set-piece episodes sometimes. There's one at Thanksgiving, one at Halloween, one at the captain's birthday. And the captain's birthday is particularly good because the precinct drops in into this world where the captain is exactly as he is, except all of his circle of friends and partner think he's hilarious. <laughs> so he's still delivering in the same manner, and they're all rolling around funny. And everyone in the, and the from the precinct, here, we just still can't see it. <laughs> its hit rate for laughs is is perfect. It's pretty good. Yeah, and it's a lovely antidote after the heavy going of the quality dramas that have been made at the moment. Well, you know there is a Netflix syndrome. So Netflix have you would have heard of this? They they have uh, tracked that when people come off a, a six or eight or ten part series, they go into decline. They have a mournful moment. Yes, and they or they're exhausted. Or both. There is exhaustion to some of these series, isn't So they there? go off Netflix for a period. I think if, of average it's something like nine days or 14 days or something, but they go off. So they've logged people. So they keep you they, – they don't hammer you. You'll yep. note that you're never hammered. But then after a two-week period or something, little – will start appearing in your inbox. You might like this or you might like that, but they know to just not hassle you. It's all been worked out and measured. It's hilarious because I find that too. You come off something that is exhausting and you just can't go near the television for another, you know. I'm trying to negotiate with Claire the second season of The Handmaid's Tale, which she acknowledges is great television, but it's just so heavy going. So for the time being, she won't watch it during winter. And I get that. (laughs) So once the weather turns... I've kept it there. We'll be watching it, hopefully, The Handmaid's Tale. Have you done Grace and Frankie? No. Oh, you've got to do that. See, that's a half-hour format, light-hearted. That would do you well. And, you know, they're pretty clever, Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda. They're pretty amazing. I'd I'd suggest that one. So where do we find Brooklyn 99? Uh, On Netflix. Okay. Yep.
There's a tip. Now, Jared, you have a recipe. I do. So is on, this Claire's recipe or your no, recipe? This is or is mine. that a really sexist thing to no, say? No, this one's mine. I found this and this is my dish. So on, we try to aim for Sunday nights together as a family and more often than not work doesn't intrude in that and that's sort of the boundary is no Sunday nights has to be for dinner. And so I cook spaghetti Crayol on those nights. So it's from their family circle cookbook. And I can't remember when I found it, but I've been cooking it since before we had kids. So that's uh, 15 years minimum. I don't know why I'm laughing about family circle. Yeah, I, just... I don't know how we come. It must have been a either a wedding present or an engagement party present. And I don't know how I decided that this one. But I've been – so our first home was Carnegie, and I've been cooking it since we were in Carnegie. So that's uh, – we've been married more than 20 years. So – uh, do I give the recipe? Please that do. How it works? Please do. So it's uh, and any little tips aside, you know. Okay, so I've sort of become quite good at this, where I don't need the recipe anymore, which is a bit of a triumph when you don't actually need any guidance anymore. So sixty grams of butter into the pan, prawns, half a kilo of prawns. We get sort of six hundred grams for two adults, three kids. Um, shelled, deveined. So I get the prawn cutlets. It just takes out most of the work. Um, Fry the prawns, just get them how you like them, take them out and put them to the side. Then it's a, a tin of peeled crushed tomatoes, 100 mils of wine, a pinch of black pepper, a white wine I should have said, two tablespoons of curry powder, a standard carton of cream, 300 mils. That's not good for the diet, Jared. <laughs> but it is delicious. And cook all of that up for sort of 10 or 12 minutes, do the spaghetti on the side, and then either get a big bowl, spaghetti in, prawns on the top and pour the sauce all over it or mix it up in a big saucepan and shell it out from there. Um, Parmesan cheese, obviously, in while you're cooking and then a bit of garnished parsley on the top. And it is... uh, And then a breadstick with it so you can get really fat and mop it up. (laughs) Especially during winter. It's lovely comfort food, I reckon. And the kids, they they love it. They've always loved it. I suspect that's got more to do with this is the meal we have when we sit down as a family. But... Yeah, so that's our Sunday nights. Well, Carol and I'll be around in a couple of weeks. Okay? Nice. And the starters is oysters, half a dozen oysters to get going. Do the kids now like oysters? No. They, oh, bless your heart. Not yet. You know, there's that turning point. There is that turning point when your kids won't go near them. Yay, more for us. And then one day they discover them. <laughs> Lissy's 11 and she's a she's got gourmet taste. She tried them, I reckon, about three months ago and just – just couldn't get it down, so and it just spat it straight out. It was hilarious. There you go, no, one day, but not yet. So we'll just have the oysters over you here. You kind of love the idea of them eating oysters because it means oh so sophisticated, <laughs> like goat's cheese. You know, now they get it. I can wait. But then it's right, <laughs> 28 bucks a, a pot for a dozen. It's it's an expensive taste. Um, Jared, I know that you're one of the nicest, kindest, warm-hearted, happiest people around, but you are grumpy today. I'm grumpy. I'm grumpy about Optus and the World Cup, and there's a couple of layers to this. So I'm grumpy, first of all, that uh, the World Cup is not on my Foxtel box. So I understand we live in a world where it can't all be on free-to-air TV, but I assumed the World Cup would be on my Foxtel box somewhere, be in sport or something like that, and I would be able to watch it as I choose to watch it. It's on a streaming service. And we in this country are not ready for major sporting events to be on a streaming service. And guess what? 
the streaming service didn't adequately work, which was the greatest no-brainer of all, that on Monday morning there would be widespread fury around buffering, around not being able to log in, about not being able to get a single minute of it. The second layer to this is the disappointment that in this country in 2018, we are not technologically advanced sufficiently to be able to deliver a product like streaming the World Cup to the homes. And this is this is a long-term failure. We have known for the course of my adult life that technology would be the key driver of what we regarded to be the clever country and we have no claim to anymore. It's not rocket science, is it? No. And then the third layer is this is a fundamental failure of leadership across the board, across a generation, both sides of politics that have been too busy playing politics with each other and not forming adequate public policy. And the fact that the NBN is rubbish, it's already superseded and it hasn't even been rolled out. That is the source of national shame. And it holds us back from what we aspire to be. And it'll hold my kids back to be so far behind other developed countries and that this is the moment. This, it, this should work. You should be able to, as a mainstream product, stream the World Cup and we can't do it. I'm so angry about it. And this is for all those politicians who have been knifing leaders instead of running public policy and forming bold ideas, this is it. This is what it looks like and we will pay for it for a generation to come. Would you like to blow them a raspberry? <laughs> Yay. Do you know what? I reckon that's that probably surpasses my grumpy when my car was towed and I had to pay $380 to get it out and then I did exactly the same thing four days later, parked oh, no. it in the same spot. <laughs> so in the space of a week, the car cost me nearly $800. Oh, yeah, that that's... was better than that. But, but that's more World personal. Cup. I get that. <laughs> oh, no, no. I, not being able to watch the World Cup, Cup is very personal in our house. Yeah. We also have the Foxtel issue. With I thought they would all be there. Um, okay, six quick questions. And I love um, when Carol and I answer this question. We can go off. We could do a whole program <laughs> on this. What is your least favorite household chore? Mowing the lawn. I won't do it. I did it as a kid. Uh, I did it with my grandpa. I don't know why it's not a fonder memory for me, but I vowed that when I was an adult, I would not mow the lawns. So two doors down, Ed mows the lawn for relaxation and enjoyment. And I sort of envy that. And Simon around the corner, he's got three lawn mowers. And uh, it's just, I will not do it. I'll never mow the lawn. There is such a thing as lawnmower politics. Okay. You know, like my machine's bigger than yours. Oh, right. Or- yeah. So I'm not part of that. I'm just. I'm happy to pay. So what? The grass is long at your house, or you get the local? We're doing the right thing by the local economy. Um, One month after the wedding, how is Meghan Markle faring as the new royal on the block? Oh, I love her. Yeah. As if I'd say anything else, really. Look. The Duchess of Sussex. Oh, can we just not call her Meghan Markle anymore? Okay. It's like calling Kate Kate Middleton. Come on, we have to show a bit of respect. These are women of the crown now, Jared. Um, from her debut um, at Royal Ascot this week, where she wore that beautiful white Givenchy dress, to that off-the-shoulder Carolina Herrera, or sorry, I think it's Herrera actually, <laughs> frock that she wore to the Trooping of the Colour. I mean, how audacious to show a bit of... Uh, shoulder during the day. I think her her fashion moments have been amazing. One pundit who writes for one of the, I don't know, the Sunday Express or one of those English papers said uh, that she believes the reason why Megan is sticking to this 
colour palette of beige and white and pale pink is because she's very respectful of not upstaging the queen, who, of course, is always in coral or turquoise or... Citrus yellow on opening day at Royal Ascot. That's right. Oh, you watched. Oh, yeah, I love Royal Ascot. I don't mean the race, Jim. No, I mean we watched the, the procession down the street. <laughs> I just think she's doing a great job. I was a bit upset that she's now um, – well, I was upset that she had to wear stockings and that the first lot of stockings she wore to the Prince of Wales' 70th birthday were really too pale for her skin. Could somebody not have acknowledged that now we have a coloured – a person of colour and mixed race in the royal family? So let them use – you know, wear a slightly darker yep. tone. I can see that you're on my page with that. Uh, yep, you absolutely yep. agree with that. There's that lovely photo of her with the Queen. Yes, early they in were the week. giggling. They yep. went to some. They went to a function together, which I think is a really lovely tradition that the Queen takes them out. Now, um, Jared. Andrew Rule, who is mm. a dear friend of uh, the pods and ours, has a new book coming out in October on Winx, The Amazing Racehorse. You wrote a bestseller a couple of years ago. In fact, we had an event at the shop for you on Black Caviar. I wondered which is the best racehorse in your view. So you just ask this question so casually. This runs right to the core of who I am. As a, It's like asking which is your favourite child in a way. So I, I've resisted answering this question in every forum Oh, come on, it's Don't Shoot the Messenger. But I'll answer it here. Winx is the better racehorse. What she's been able to do might be unrivaled in terms of the CV she's accumulated. And the fact that she's done all of this and she's won 25 in a row. So Black Caviar's thing was the streak, which amassed to 25, which was hadn't been done around the world since centuries ago. And that Winx has been able to do that as well as everything else, she's the better racehorse. Like, I always thought Frankel was a better racehorse than Black Caviar. But Black Caviar had something different going. And that idea of invincibility and sort of the thesis of the book is why did she connect with people mm. in the way heart, that she did? That heart. Yeah. So she connected with people in the way that Farlap connected with our grandparents' generation. But just in their pure racing deeds, I couldn't, with a straight face, maintain that Black Caviar is a better horse. Kim Jong Un, you heard it here, folks. Yes, arrived in Beijing less than a week after meeting U.S. President Donald Trump. Should we be surprised and alarmed? I can't believe when you're asking, you're going it's from Meghan Markle's pantyhose colour to Kim Jong Un. Look, of course, everybody should be worried, but did we think that he was not going? He's been to China three times, I think, this year. So. Uh, he has obviously gone there to dib a dob or, you know, maybe have a laugh and say... Maybe a laugh. I like the idea of a laugh. And say, you'll never guess who I met last week. He's a crackpot, this President of the United States. Something's going down there. But, um, no, I suspect they're probably having a bit of a chat about the surprising US decision to suspend military drills in the, in the, with South Korea in the China Sea. I would have thought that would probably be a hot topic for conversation. So there's a lot going on that we have no understanding of. I think we hope the world is edging towards being safer under Donald Trump's sort of mad genius or we're really in this spot where, oh, I don't know where this is leading us. And the way I'm glaring at you now, what side would you think that I was on? Don't get me started on, the, on Trump. Oh, <laughs> because I know Dennis Rodman is in the Donald Trump camp. So you've got Dennis Rodman, Kim Kardashian, Donald Trump. I'm not siding there, probably ever. They can have a party on their own. Now to another surprise question, because we often talk about this as well on our podcast. 
Paul McCartney's birthday is this week. Mm-hmm. He's 76. That makes us feel, feel a bit old. What's your favourite Paul McCartney song? Oh, so I'll tell if you tell. So Paul McCartney's not my top. long suit. Okay. But Live and Let Die, which I will confess I know more from Guns N' Roses than I do from Paul McCartney. <laughs> but I know it from the Roger Moore Bond movie. And that that's probably in the best three Bond theme tracks, I would have thought. <sighs> Yeah, but do you really do we really consider Bond theme tracks proper songs? For the purpose of this exercise, yes. <laughs> okay. So clearly, give us a more not purist your, view. Clearly not your strong suit. No. Well, as I said on the pod a few weeks ago, because Paul came up, he did that wonderful interview with Lee Sale where she was probably like me, really, just couldn't say a word. She was just giggling like an idiot and then ended up saying, you know, I've been in love with you all my life. Yes, I agree. Maybe I'm amazed I really love, which he did um, not long after he left the Beatles. But when he was with the Beatles, I think you can't go past Blackbird as a beautiful song and Hey Jude as some sort hey of Jude, theme or yeah. anthem. I think Nance said, uh, Caro said, um, Eleanor Rigby from memory, didn't she? I can't remember. Jane's looking confused. Anyway, we love most of what he writes, but he wasn't my favourite Beatle, I have to say. Okay, I can sense my first apology. Yeah, I'll just <laughs> mark that with an asterisk. <laughs> <laughs> your crush of the week. This is such an eclectic mix, Corey. Who is well, your crush of the it, week? This well, week? It, it's. Uh, it, it, I do sometimes go for um, politicians. In this case, I'm going for a politician's wife. My crush of the week, Jared, is Laura Bush, former first lady, because she came out and made comments about the Trump administration's zero tolerance illegal immigration policy regarding the separation of families on the US-Mexican border. So she basically said that all these kids, little ones, even young, as young as 18 months, that are being ripped from the arms of their parents and stuck in a pen, it has to stop. Now, Laura Bush rarely engages mm. in any sort of discussion. And in fact, during her husband's two terms, she was known for her discretion. And even when his ratings were so far down the toilet, she remained around 90%. So they love her. And for her to come out a pure, true blue Republican and have such a personal crack at the president, I think, yippee yahoo. Cruel and immoral. Oh, what a shocker. Yes, I agree. And, Jared, um, my good local tip today, I have a present for you. Oh. Do you play golf, Jared? Uh, I have and I will. Oh, my God. Where's my thing? So this here in this little packet, Mm -hmm. they're called hand Hand warmers. Okay. (laughs) That's your present. So Tell me about um, hand warmers. So hand warmers, well, you don't have to just be a golfer. It could be anything. You could be walking to school and it's freezing cold in Melbourne. You could be um, you could be uh, playing some sort of sport or going to the footy, standing in the outer and your hands are freezing and you forgot your mittens, Jared. What would you do? Stick these in your pocket. Yeah. So you undo them, you shake them around, you stick them in the pocket and magically they warm up for 10 hours. I have a friend, Val Hallimore, who I played golf with not long ago, and she had two in her pocket, and she melted her lipstick. <laughs> it's like, they're so hot. Maybe our cricketers in England could pop these in their pockets. Possibly. Anyway, my these these things are not all that inexpensive, usually $4 for a packet, but my um, husband, Pete, who loves a bargain, went over to Chemist Warehouse in Heidelberg, and he picked up five packets. There are two in a packet, one for each hand, for five bucks. So... <laughs> So, you know what? There you are. Look, just keep your hands warm. Claire and I prepared a local tip. Kids love to rake, and they're surprisingly good at it. (laughs) Let the kids do the raking. Just get the bin out, open it up, send them out. Kids love to rake. This is not just true in our house. It was apparently true up at 
kitchen garden this week at, in prep. But do you remember when we used to rake, we were allowed to then put a bit of you know, petrol on and light a bonfire. Oh, the world's changed. We're not allowed to do that anymore. Oh, Jared, I have enjoyed this so much. Do we have to have Caro back, Jane? Really? Do we? Please? No. I like having it with Jared. Thank you very Thanks, much Corey. for filling in. It's been so lovely. And Claire in absentia, you've popped up probably more than you've realised or want to be involved. She cooked Caro's prawn pillows for our royal wedding party a couple of weeks ago. I heard you cook the prawn pillows. No, I reached out to get the recipe. <laughs> Clear that the cooking, they were oh, a great hit. Were they? They were. Oh, well, well, maybe we'll have a prawn pillow bake-off. <laughs> um, thank you to all our wonderful gang out there in Podworld for listening to Don't Shoot the Messenger. We love all your comments. Um, we appreciate you listening. Uh, don't forget to rate us via Apple, iTunes and Facebook because it does help other people find our podcast and we love getting your feedback via all the usual places, the email, the Carol and Corrie Instagram account, da-da-da. Jared would like to hear from you too personally for anything. That Send me a list of apologies. <laughs> and Jared, what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger, Corey. <laughs> Don't shoot the messenger. Even when sometimes he really deserves it. Listener.